at Proverbs 23, uh, verse 29 through 35. And uh, I want you to think about this question. Um, What is the first lesson in the school of Christ? That's an old way of saying, what is the first lesson of being a Christian? Um, Old theologians used to call uh, you entering into Christianity or entering into the school of Christ. So that's a question I'm going to give you the answer to in just a moment after we read. Uh, But also something that I think might help you as we read through this because it's nearly entirely about wine, uh, verses 29 through 35. But what wine is doing for Solomon here, and ultimately for the Holy Spirit, is serving as a a foil for all types of sins and uh, the need to uh, exercise restraint, self-control, and all those things. All right, so I'm going to read verses 29 through 35, and then I'll tell you the answer to the question, what is the first lesson of the school of Christ? Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? Who is it? Verse 30. They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup. When it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent, and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? And I will seek it yet again, or so that I may seek it yet again. Amen. So what is the first lesson of the school of Christ? If somebody asks you that question, what's the first thing you learn about being a Christian? What would you say if you had to give a suggestion or somebody asked you, what would you say? It's kind of scary trying to answer that, isn't it? It's a very narrow and specific question. If you're relating it to what we just read, mm-hmm. I guess maybe sober-minded. Yeah, something like that, for sure. Um, the phrase that Bridges used was self-denial. Self-denial, um, or deny yourself, because he was quoting Christ. If anyone would come after me, the very first thing he must do, remember Christ said this, mm-hmm. deny yourself, right? And also, uh, many of the uh, beginning words in the Gospels of either Jesus' preaching or the record of his preaching always began with the word repent, right? Which is a a theological term, as it were, for uh, deny yourself, to turn from where you are going and go another direction. All right, so that's... The first lesson in the school of Christ, and because uh, Mr. Tom uh, alluded to it already, that's basically the theme of verses 29 through 35, self-denial. 
Uh, let me walk through uh, the text here. And again, if you have any questions or comments you'd like to ask, please uh, don't hesitate to share them. Uh, in verse 29, um, you just have questions that are <clears throat> uh, preparing you for the answer of verse 30. Who has woe, who has sorrow, contentions, right? Uh, who has these things is the question. Like what person is in possession or what person is uh, given over to these, um, these things, right? One of them is, is quite physical, right? Redness of eyes. And we can bear witness to that when we've seen people who drink too much, right? They have uh, red eyes. But he says it's those who tarry long, those who linger long at the wine, those who uh, drink too much, they that go to seek uh, mixed wine is what uh, the King James says. Uh, the, the term that's being used there, though, is communicating not just wine in general, but the strongest type, right? the very strongest strong drink uh, that you could be given. Because as we know, the Bible doesn't condemn uh, drinking in general. It commends self-control to us. But this person here is one who loves wine so much, they simply only seek that which is the strongest. And... Uh, Bridges makes this point. He says that every sin brings its own mischief. Every sin brings its own mischief, right? And the mischief of wine uh, or strong drink is laid out in verse 29. And it's also hinted at uh, at the end where it makes you uh, in verse 34 and 35. It gives you a very uh, funny image kind of. <clears throat> one who's laying down in the midst of the ocean, right? Being overcome with wine definitely does uh, make you feel like you are swimmy-headed at times. Or as he that lies upon the top of a mast, right? As if you're in a boat and you're laying up at the top of the mast. Maybe like you're going to fall down or, or like you don't know how you got there, that kind of thing. But every sin brings its own mischief. And this section highlights the mischief uh, in particular, of being drunk. <clears throat> he says there are uh, brawls and contentions over the cup. You know, people fight over alcohol. There's the babbling words of pollution, right? It makes you uh, say uh, crazy things. Maybe you've been around someone uh, who, when they get drunk, they just say all kind of stuff. There's a reason that uh, when um, high-ranking officials want someone to confess to something, and they have these private meetings, they very often give them something to drink. Right? Meet me at the bar. I want to have a talk with you. Those kind of things. You see that in movies, right? You see it in movies all the time. <laughs> Sam tells me about it. He's a fit. <laughs> <laughs> um, they have red eyes, right, showing the effect of these drinks on the countenance. They have impure appetites that are kindled, right? Uh, the infatuation is almost incredible. And he gives us another helpful word. And this is what I want us to pick up on for a minute. Because he begins talking about sensuality. Not sexuality. Sensuality. That's S-E-N-S-U-A-L-I-T-Y. Right? So senses is the idea there. And what is sensuality? Um, one dictionary defines sensuality as an excessive devotion... To sensual pleasure. An excessive devotion to sensual pleasure. So it's not condemning sensual pleasure. It's condemning an excessive devotion to it or a lack of control of that appetite, right? Um, we could play this in today's standards 
and talk about a excessive devotion to comfort, right? An excessive devotion to fill in the blank, right? entertainment, uh, whatever the case may be. You can think of all kinds of things, things that are not in themselves bad, but when they are excessive, right, it brings you to great sin. Um, sensual, if you're having trouble uh, defining that word, uh, it means relating to or consisting in the gratification of the senses or the indulgence of appetite. Uh, I pointed you to the beginning of chapter 23 last time where Solomon brings out this idea when you sit down to eat with a ruler that you're to consider diligently what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite, meaning if you have trouble controlling your appetite. And the same idea is being applied here with wine, this need to be one of self-control because these are the consequences um, now, I kind of hinted at it just a second ago, and I want us to talk about it for just a second. I, rack your brain and, and help me here. Think of an example of something that is like a natural appetite that is not bad in itself, but when given over to excessive devotion becomes uh, sinful, as it were. What's an example? Right, alcohol is an easy one. That's right, right here in the text. What's another one? Eating, Eating right? Food. Right? We talked about uh, last week because in the text before this, the passage before this, it talks about gluttony. Very good. What's another one? Self-absorbed. Okay. All right. What else? Sex. Sex. Yeah, for sure. Right. Um, uh, comfort's a big one, right? Because being comfortable is, is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but an obsession with being comfortable is a bad thing, right? It can cause you to do all kinds of strange things with your money. It can cause you to... Tr- social media, right? Um, one of the common things today is... Uh, uh, well, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here, but what, when you uh, Netflix binge and stuff like that... Um, I can tell you because I don't do it often, but when I get a show that I like, my sleep goes, <laughs> it just does, right? Because I can just watch it and watch it and watch it. And is it wrong to watch one episode? Well, not necessarily. Is it wrong to watch two? Maybe, maybe not. But when you start going three, four, five, and I'm spending more time awake watching TV than I am sleeping and with my family or studying combined, that's a problem. Right? Told video games that yeah. Oh, yeah. Video games. I mean, I can even like uh, sports and things like that, right? Where we start uh, getting excited about certain sports, uh, hobbies in general, right? Um, anything that uh, can lead you, anything that can lead you to a neglect of your duties could also fill in this blank, right? Um, so it could be something that is much more neutral, like uh, gardening, right? Like some people become obsessive about that kind of stuff to where uh, they no longer have time for their family or their friends, their church, or whatever the case may be. Um, I, I mean, I'm just throwing out examples. But that very thing is what is being addressed, that uncontrolled appetite of something that is not necessarily bad, 
is what's being addressed in verses 29 through 35. And, and you think about it because behind all those things, it's sensuality, right? That there's some feeling that you get that you're beginning to serve, that you're beginning to lift up and exalt to highly. Like with, I mean, I can relate to the sports stuff, right? Because Colt and I play golf sometimes. If I was to become obsessed with golf, maybe it would be because I really want to not just beat Colt, but put him in the ground, right? And I could become obsessive about it, right? Um, I mean, going back to uh, maybe like even um, interior decorating, like the way people get really excited about the way their their house looks or um, the furniture that they have or the car that they drive and those kind of things. Think about the reasons behind making those choices where you have to make these decisions. Whether it puts your family in a bind, whether it's inconvenient for anybody else, it doesn't matter. right? You're, you're so overcome by that appetite that is, on the surface, not necessarily wrong, but it becomes obs- obs- mm, obsessive, excessive, where you don't know how to control it. And that is where uh, Proverbs 23, 1 and 2 especially comes in. When you sit before a ruler, when you're in the context of something that is going to be a temptation to you, put a knife to your throat. Right? That is the ongoing wisdom that would carry over into 29 through 35. Uh, Bridges also carries over this idea where he says, um, they're not satisfied with simply healthful refreshment. But instead, as Deuteronomy 29, 19 says, they add drunkenness to thirst. Right? They add drunkenness to thirst. Do you see that? Right? Thirst is not wrong. Right? But they use thirst as an excuse to be drunk. Right? They use having a nice house with, as an excuse to drive their family tremendously into unnecessary debt. Uh, I mean, anything like that. You can fill in uh, the blank. Um, you can think about it with... Uh, I saw one earlier uh, that was talking about... Um, it was a... Let me see if I can pull it up real quick so I don't get the quote wrong. What do they call Twitter now? X? X? I don't even understand that, but whatever. Uh, so have y'all seen... I don't know if you know anything about memes, but there will be certain memes where it's uh it's like a comic strip basically and it's only one or two images and the first image is like where they set the scene and the second one is where they give the explanation basically so in this particular meme it has uh the one of the main characters uh from scooby-doo what's the blonde-headed guy's name scooby-doo fred yeah okay so fred is about to take the mask off of somebody all right Um, And he says, let's see who it really is. This person with the mask on says, my kids are witnesses at public school. But then he takes the mask off to reveal the true identity or the true heart of that person. And it is, two incomes gives me more stuff. Right? Because people use sending their kids to a school that's free or not homeschooling, or not paying to send them to a private school, those kind of things. It's just an example, right? They use it and say, well, you know, I'm doing it for this reason, I'm doing it for that reason, but really at heart, what it might be is they just like having two incomes and lets them have more stuff, 
right? Because if mama doesn't have to tend to the children, or today, 2023, if daddy don't have to tend to the children, because we see this sad resurgence in stay-at-home dads, which is super weird, right? Then we can have two incomes and have more stuff and pray the kids through the hell that we have to send them to, right? Not satisfied, but instead adding to a thirst, drunkenness. He says they can continue long from morning to night till wine inflames them. That's a quotation from Isaiah 5, verse 11. And he says they go to seek the mixed wine as it is the strongest and most inebriating drink. And I think that's a quotation from Jeremiah chapter uh, 2. How much time? Okay. Um, Let's see. Uh, He calls it, this is is a helpful thing too, because... we have to begin to diagnose our own hearts when we hear stuff like this because some people struggle with abusing alcohol, but everybody struggles with abusing something where they overindulge. And he calls this the overindulged will, right? Where you're not simply satisfied with what is enough, but you have to have more and it's sinful and you keep feeding it, feeding it, no matter the consequences. And it's kind of like this idea in verse 32 where it says, at the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Meaning, once, there, once the cycle goes through, you feel the guilt about it, right? Once you're on the backside of the cycle, or maybe once the full consequences of this decision that lasts many years, once that is in play, then it finally bites. And he makes this point. He says, if it bit on the front side, who would touch it? But this is how the devil works. He hides the bite, the consequences, on the backside. And again, you can see how this doesn't just apply to drinking too much. It applies to anything over which, or under which Christ deny yourself would fall. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a, I mean, that would be one um, maybe reason for someone doing it. Uh, to me, you listed a couple things there, right? The, at root, of course, it's about um, if you're not denying yourself, then you're denying Christ, right? Um, but then a fruit of that or uh, something that comes from that is you're trying to um, compensate for some other area in your life, right? Um, whereas Christ calls us to a full self-examination, right? And he puts his claim over all of our lives, all of our affections, all of our decisions, um, whether it be our, our children, our grandchildren, our job, our career, our, our, um, our home, I mean, all those things, our church and all that. Uh, and he says, uh, later on, he says, It's not very often that any sensual indulgence comes alone. This is a a wonderful warning here. He says, one lust prepares the way for others. The first step is sure to lead onwards. The poor, deluded victim cannot stop when he pleases. Drunkenness opens the door for impurity. The inflamed eye soon catches fire with the strange women. And who knows what the end of that may be. Loathsome indeed is the heart of the ungodly laid 
bear. And and you think of it again, like uh, just how many consequences there are to self-consuming sins like this, right? That it always affects other people, right? It always affects other things that you're doing and other relationships that you have. And he says, uh, more senseless, they are more senseless than the brute who satisfies his nature, but not his lust. And they're lost to shame. His reason has so tyrannized over, is so tyrannized over by his appetite that he longs to be bound again and only seeks relief from his temporary awakening to a sense of his misery by yielding himself up again to his ruinous sin. That's, that's like deep right there. Let me see if I can explain it and open it up for you. You ever feel as if you're so controlled by this sin, or just a, let's just call it, well, you can call it a bad habit, but what it really is is sin, right? You can call it just a, you know, a, a bad tendency, a personality trait, but under the law of God, it's a sin, right? And your reason, that which you know you ought to do, is like pushed out when the moment for that thing comes, right? When the temptation comes, again, it doesn't have to be something enormous. It could be something as simple as slothfulness, like laziness, It overcomes your reason, is what he's saying. And the only thing that you can do if you're going to uh, put yourself at ease is to continue to give into it until you finally hit the bottom. Right? But... Things like that are good. You know, things like watching Netflix can be restored, like restoration for us, mm-hmm. even. But the excess itself is when, it, uh, you know, it's when the appetites are trying to drive the chariot down. Um, with with that idea that Lewis was talking about, again, it's we don't have men who have will. We have the intellect on that backside, like you said. Mm-hmm. We know that what we've done is sinful. Even before we get to that point, mm-hmm. we know it's sinful. Mm-hmm. But then the idea of 
idea of uh, us actually having the will to overcome it. We yeah. don't have the chest. We yeah. don't have that spirit to be able to Yeah, and I mean, this is the, the struggle that Paul gets at in Romans 7, right? The, where the, the Christian is desirous to do, um, to obey the law of God, but he so often finds himself not doing it, even though he really doesn't want to do the thing that he continues to choose to do. But he says, thanks uh, be to God for the law of God and, and all those things. But I want to turn, and, and you kind of gave me a segue to do it, uh, towards... Um, the the light, as it were, because you know, um, focusing on self examination and thinking about our sin is is good and wonderful and necessary, but it it's ultimately to give way to meditating on uh, our gratitude for the Lord Jesus. Right? And he says uh, that basically the way Bridges closes his meditation on this section is to realize that there's nothing too hard for the Lord and that we are to praise his name for a full deliverance from sin of all and every sin, even from the chains of this giant sin, because we're not to read these sections and see like, huh, I know someone else who's like that or, huh, I'm caught in this sin. I guess there's no way out. I'm just going to get bit by the serpent over and over again. The Christian sees this section and says, yes, Lord. I understand the warning. Help me not give in. Right? And um, John Chrysostom is a early church father, and he wrote these letters to a young man. Let me give you just a, a little context, because it's funny how different things are. Uh, but John Chrysostom was um, uh, a monastic. Right? He lived outside the city and uh, was trying to get away from everything. He was trying to get where his appetite would have uh, no influence uh, doesn't normally work when you do that. You can't separate yourself that way from the world and expect to actually gain victory. But it was the type of living that they would very often do back then. And there was a young man whom he had mentored, and his name was Theodore. And Theodore had come to join the monastery and then had left. And if you did that, like that was, you didn't do that. That was like turning your back on the Lord, basically. And one of the reasons he left was to go get married. Um, and because of some of the twisted views of, of marriage that have often crept up in uh, Christianity, uh, John Chrysostom was very upset with him. Um, anyway, uh, so he writes these letters to encourage him to repentance and not to be overly filled with despair. Right. So that's the context, but what he says is all true. Uh, listen to what he says, though, about how the devil wants us to lose hope when we've sinned because you can read this text and do that right you can read passages like this and lose hope he says uh, for the reason why the devil plunges us into thoughts of despair is that he may cut off the hope which is towards god the safe anchor the foundation of our life the guide of the way which leads to heaven the salvation of perishing souls he cites Romans eight twenty four, which says, For by hope we are saved. And he says, For this assuredly it is, which like some strong cord suspended from the heavens. Let's just imagine this imagery. 
He said, it's like some strong cord suspended from the heavens, supporting our souls, gradually drawing towards that world on high, those who cling firmly to it, and then lifting them above the tempest of evils of this life. If anyone then becomes innervated and lets go of this sacred anchor, lets go of that cord, straightway he falls down and is suffocated and has entered into an abyss of wickedness. And the evil one knows this. And then he perceives that we are ourselves oppressed by the consciousness of our sin. And he steps in himself and lays upon us the additional burden, heavier than lead, of anxiety arising from despair. And if we accept it, it follows of necessity that we are immediately dragged down by the weight And having been parted from that cord, we've separated ourselves from that cord. The devil's there to remind us we're separated from that cord. We descend into the depth of misery where we ourselves find us now. Having forsaken the commandments of the meek and lowly master and executing all the injunctions of the cruel tyrant and implacable enemy of our salvation. Having broken in pieces the easy yoke and cast away the light burden and having put on the iron collar instead of these things. Yes, having indeed hung a millstone from our own necks. Where then can you find a footing hereafter when you are submerging your unhappy soul, imposing on yourself this necessity of continually seeking downwards? Where is it? Well, it's in God alone, through the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil strives to bring us into despair By cutting off our hope in God, which is what keeps us connected to heaven. Bridges says, The mighty, though despised instrument of Christian victory, is Christ crucified. The power of God and the wisdom of God. It is this, which when vows, pledges, and resolutions have all failed, it is Christ and Him crucified that works secretly yet most effectually, imparting new principles, affections, and appetites. The drunkard becomes sober. The unclean becomes holy. The glutton becomes temperate because the love of Christ overpowers the love of sin. Pleasures are now enjoyed without a sting, for there is no serpent and no adder here. And the newly implanted principle transforms the whole man and to the original likeness of God. Then he cites 1 John um, 5.18, I believe it is. Whatsoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him. That's 1 John 3.9, and then verse 18, chapter 5. For he cannot sin because he's born of God. He that is begotten of God keeps himself, and the wicked one touches him not. So... Meditations on sin like this, understanding the depth and um, of temptation, the danger of it, uh, we can only hope to conquer it and to pass through with the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ crucified is the mighty, though despised instrument, the power of God and the wisdom of God for our salvation. Amen. Any uh, closing thoughts or Comments, questions. Before for that, um, you mentioned. Uh, uh, I'm just looking at that um, Romans mm-hmm. section. 
Okay, he's you talking about the verse he cited here? All right. Well, I will tell you this: uh, when you start looking at uh, old or ancient Christian writings, or even pre-modern, like Puritan era stuff, very often the scripture references are not right. Um, partly because uh, some of them wrote before the Bible had verse enumerations, right? So it would be something that was picked up along the way, and they've never checked, but. Romans 8.24, mine says, for we are saved by hope. We are saved in this hope, mine says. Well, okay, yeah. And, and that's why I say it seems like we've got to go back to the verse. That's just a translational issue. Yeah, that, that's yeah. not, hey, I mean, they thankfully got the verse right there. Uh, okay. The King James does say, for we are saved by hope. That's a, uh, a single Greek word there that can be rendered as one or two words. So the King James, old translators, chose one word. And the new King James, I guess you're looking at. Yeah, yeah, they chose two. So. But, but it says here, for we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's talking about the direction of our hope. Well, it's, it's talking about hope really in two different ways, right? Um, for we are saved by hope or in this hope. And the hope that he's speaking of is described, right, before, like you say. right? It's the great work of Christ described in the early parts of chapter 8. And it is in this or by this we're saved. So we're saved by hope or by this hope. But, lest we be confused... Understand that hope that is seen is not actually hope. Right? We don't see it. Right? We hope for what we do not yet see. Right? We hold on to that spiritual cord, as it were, from heaven, which is Christ Himself. Or we stay on the ladder to heaven, uh, Jacob's ladder, and all those things that uh, so much spiritual imagery could be drawn out there. That answer your question, sort of, kind of, yeah. Just poking at it. All right. Any other comments, questions? <clears throat> All right. Well, we will close in prayer. We have finished Proverbs twenty-three.